you have your Bibles, would you please open to Luke chapter 24? Luke chapter 24. We'll be in verse 13 today, and we're going to get there in just a minute, but before we do, I want you to think about something for me real quick. Think about a time when you have been a skeptic of something, or you've been a doubter of something. Something just seemed too good to be true, or maybe you just didn't believe it could even possibly happen. And then, in the moment when you experienced that thing, your mind was blown and your life was changed. So let me give some examples of what this could look like. Maybe it's the first time you ever tried menudo. You know, somebody puts menudo on and you're like, what? Wait, there's what in this? And then you taste it and you're like, oh my goodness. And you're preaching the good news of menudo to everyone you meet. Or maybe more personally and close to home for me, a few years ago, um, I got really sick. I mean, this is probably four or five years ago. I don't think that I have ever been this sick in my entire life. Um, and so at this time in my life, I was working 70 to 80 hours a week at my job and I felt like I was probably more important than I was, and so I was like, man, I got to get back to work. I cannot miss time from work. And so I was trying everything. I was trying everything that was natural, unnatural, uh, everything I could think of, everything my wife and I could think of at the time, we were trying to get me better. And so for weeks this happened, and, and yet every night I would go to bed coughing, and I would not be able to sleep because I was coughing so badly. And so... Weeks go by, I'm not sleeping, I'm not recovering, and Julie just says, hey, I know you're going to hate what I'm about to say, but I think that we should try some essential oils. And I was like, oh my goodness, not this multi-level marketing scheme again. And so she, she pushes it for a couple days, and finally I'm like, all right, fine, we can try the essential oils, because literally everything we had tried, nothing had worked. And so she, we try the essential oils, and she puts some essential oils on me before I go to bed, and I couldn't tell you which ones, but... That night, I slept, <laughs> and I woke up the next morning ready to go join Young Living as a salesman because I had found the power of essential oils, and now I'm preaching the good news of essential oils to you. Here in our passage today, we will walk along the road with two disheartened, doubting, and skepti skeptical disciples as the resurrected Christ reveals God's plan of salvation and redemption to them. So just before we get in, just so you know where I'm going, when we encounter Jesus as the center of all the scriptures, it leads to passionate joy. So today, Luke chapter 24, verses 13, and we're going to go through 35. We'll, we'll cover a bit of text today, but... I'll get you out of here by 12.30, I promise. 11.30, not 12.30. You'll be gone before 12.30. All right. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things as that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? 
and they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that that your spirit would move in this place. You would open our eyes to understand the scriptures that you have inspired. Illuminate our hearts, Lord. May we be a people whose hearts burn with passionate joy at the knowledge of your resurrection. May you be glorified in us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to give a a shameless plug for the morning uh, morning Bible study. This morning we were talking about context and the importance of context in our 9 a.m. Bible study. And so here, we're going to just address some context real quick. In this specific passage, Jesus has just died. And then he is risen. But there's a question on the disciples' minds. Did he really rise again, or was this a false thing? Was this fake? Did something happen? His body's not there, but we just don't know. Some women had had gone to the tomb where Jesus was buried on the third day, the day that Jesus said that he would rise again. And they went with oils and spices. And many of us would think, what, is, what are they doing with oils and spices? Well, at this point in time, there was not really a plan for how to make bodies not smell bad when they had passed. And so the women going on the third day were going because they assumed that Jesus was still dead. They were going to go make sure he didn't smell bad still. 
So there's disbelief that we already see at the very beginning, even in the context of this story. So the women head to the tomb, and when they get there, Jesus is not there. The stone has been rolled away. Good news. And there's two heralds that are sitting, not heralds as H-A-R-H-E-R, two heralds that are sitting, two angels that are sitting by the tomb, and they profess the good news that Jesus has risen. He is alive. And these women go about heralding this good news to the disciples. The disciples, they hear about this, and they take off towards the tomb. They go. But something fascinating happens. They get to the tomb, and they don't see Jesus, and so they don't believe. And then we come to our text today. The disciples have dispersed. They do not see Jesus. They don't believe And we see two disciples headed on their way home, away from Jerusalem, away from Jesus. These two disciples have decided that there isn't really anything worth waiting for anymore. Jesus, he's not in his tomb. He didn't rise. He didn't reveal himself to us. We're going to go home. And so they start the very... That very day, the walk towards, Jerusalem, or towards Emmaus, the seven miles that it will take them to get there, about 2.5 hours of a walk, or two and a half hours in normal language. And on the way, they begin to discuss all that has happened in the days prior. And while they're talking about these things, a stranger approaches them. The text tells us that it's Jesus himself who draws near to them. And I think there's a, a little a little piece that we need to pull out of this real quickly. And it's that Jesus draws near to skeptics and doubters. He is not fleeing in the opposite direction of people who are asking questions. In fact, these people are actually walking in the opposite direction of Jesus. They've left and he goes and he meets them. He doesn't just say, well, you missed out. Instead, he goes and pursues these people who are walking away from him. The text tells us that even though Jesus had revealed himself or had shown up on the road, they could not recognize him. And the the wording here actually in the Greek is a little bit more uh, emphasis on the divine aspect. The Lord had actually kept these individuals from seeing him. They could not recognize them because he was keeping them from seeing him. He didn't actually want them to recognize that this was him. And Jesus begins his encounter with these disciples by asking them a question. He says, what is it you're talking about? And as these disciples turn, I'm sure they're shocked. They're like, have you, you haven't heard what's happened in Jerusalem? Are you a visitor? Their their answer is kind of sarcastic. And Jesus doesn't just say, all right, well, here are these sarcastic, we're sarcastic doubters. We're going to leave them alone. Let them figure it out. No, instead he presses on. He says, What things are you talking about? And it says that in this moment, they stood still looking sad. And then they begin to tell him. And this is honestly kind of comical to me that they begin to tell Jesus about Jesus. So they start to profess what their understanding of the gospel is so far. They start to preach the gospel to Jesus, but their gospel is not a full gospel. In fact, it's not good news at all. It's bad news. 
The story they're about to tell is one that ends not in joyous resurrection hope, but it ends in sadness and disbelief and walking away from Christ. And so they begin their story. They say Jesus is a man or was a man who was a prophet. And immediately we recognize that there's doubt in their minds. It's a past tense. He was. Because they believe he's dead. And they recognize in the way that they talk about him, there's disbelief. He was a mighty man indeed and word before God and all people. And he was condemned to death. And he was crucified. And then we see that had language again. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Immediately we see that they had expectations upon Christ that were not being met. They had hoped, which implies that there's not a current hope. And besides all this, it's the third day since he was crucified, which points back to the fact that they recognized he prophesied that he would die and rise again. But for some reason, there's something inside of them that's not allowing them to believe And I think that has to do with expectations. They had expectations for how Jesus' ministry as the Messiah who would redeem Israel was supposed to look. They had expectations upon his ministry, and it didn't involve death. It involved restoring the kingdom to its former glory. This is continued on in Acts chapter 1. The disciples have now recognized that Jesus is resurrected, and they say to him, All right, Lord, well, now will you restore the former glory of the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responds, you, you don't understand. You see, because their expectations was that this kingdom would be a, a visible kingdom that they could place their hands on, that they could sit on thrones and they could rule. But that was not the kingdom that Jesus established in his death and resurrection. Jesus did indeed redeem Israel, and he redeems us through his death and resurrection on the cross. But it does not happen in the way that man expects or that the disciples had expected. And because of that, they turned and walked away. They lost hope because it didn't look the way they thought it should. And there's a reason for this expectation. They were not wrong to have this expectation. They were a little bit misinformed, and that's important for us to recognize. And we'll get to why they had this expectation in Jesus' response a little bit later. But for now, what we can tell is that they had expectations of the Messiah that were not reflected in the ministry and more specifically in the death of Jesus. How could death be a good thing? How could he redeem this? And then they finish their story with an account of The women, they had received the good news, they had given the good news to us, and then upon our receiving of the good news, we went to the tomb and we didn't see Jesus, which is just so ironic because he's standing right in front of them right now. And so here we have their incomplete gospel presentation doesn't lead to hope or to joy or even to good news, but instead it leads to depression and to sadness. 
And like a bride left at the altar on her wedding day, instead of celebrating the wedding feast, she is going home early, bewildered and filled with regret, sadness, and confusion. And this is the position we find the disciples in today. They were ready to celebrate and disappointed, left by the groom. But luckily, there's good news. The story is not the story that these disciples told. You see, they stopped too soon. They didn't finish the story. They didn't believe that Jesus was alive. And so this stranger on the road preaches a better sermon. He begins his sermon with a gentle rebuke, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. And there's a key word here, all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, their gospel message that they had proclaimed to Jesus was incomplete because they didn't believe all that the prophets had spoken. They had a shortened view of the gospel. The gospel that they preached to Jesus of sadness and disbelief was because they weren't listening to all that was prophesied about Christ, to all that the prophets had laid out in front of them. And so this is just amazing to me. They had a view of the future kingdom that was all glory and absolutely no suffering. Their view of the future kingdom was, hey, he's going to glorify, he's going to make it great, it's going to be amazing, and we're going to be kings, we're going to rule and reign with him, but there's not going to be suffering. And yet, if we were to go back to the prophets, as Jesus is about to do and unpacks the scriptures, it is absolutely necessary that the Christ would suffer and die in order to enter into glory. Glorification does not happen without suffering. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so what we see is that Jesus begins to interpret the Old Testament as Christ-centered. He looks back to the Old Testament and draws out of it the central message is that Christ would die and he would rise again and establish his kingdom through his death and resurrection. And we see other examples of this in Scripture. This is not the first time we see Jesus interpret the Scripture Christocentrically or Christ at the center. In John chapter 5, verse 39 through 40, he tells the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is the Scriptures that prophesy about me. The Scriptures are telling you about me. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has this amazing mic drop moment. He goes into the synagogue and he grabs the scroll that, that is written by Isaiah and he opens the scroll and he reads it and he says, and this has been fulfilled today in your midst. Mic drop, takes off. Paul, Peter, the book of Acts, the book of Revelation, the author of Hebrews, all of it looks back at the Old Testament and interprets the scriptures through the lens of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and future coming kingdom. Every bit of it points to him. That's what the scriptures are for. And yes, there is, there is pieces of that. I mean, we, want, we don't want to ignore 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about the fact that these things were written for your instruction. Absolutely. There is lessons that can be learned from the scripture. 
There's wisdom to be found there. But life comes from Christ, and the scriptures prophesy him. All of it points to him. The text tells us that they arrive at Emmaus, and Jesus acts like he's continuing to go on. And I, I was reading this, I'm like, I don't know why he's acting like he's continuing to go on. I was asking the question, I couldn't find an answer. Neither could any of the commentaries. It all seemed like it was conjecture to me. So anyway, he's pretending to go on, and we see something pulled out of this story. The disciples convince him to stay. So the disciples beg him. They say, hey, please stay with us. And there's a reason why they want him to stay with us, because the day is far spent. So what we can tell is that the disciples have just walked about two and a half hours downhill from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Along the road, Jesus joins them. And as Jesus joins them, he unpacks the scriptures to them, uh, interpreting them through a Christ-centered lens. They get to the house, and the disciples are like, oh my gosh, the day's over. You can't get anywhere. Why are you trying to go on? Stay here. Like, you're not going to make it to the next town or the next city. Stay with us. Spend the night. Then maybe tomorrow you can continue your journey. And so he stays with them because there's no day left to continue walking on. And I can just imagine what this looks like at this point in time. They, they get inside the house and they're like, oh man, it's far past dinner time. We should probably make some food. And so they, they start to, to you know, grab bread or some figs and maybe a little bit of olives and they set them on the table. And I can just picture what's going through their minds as they're thinking through the unpacking of the scriptures that this Messiah, this Christ, has just laid upon them. And as they're thinking about this, I can imagine that they're marveling and potentially not all there, and they're looking out into the distance, and before they know it, this stranger is hosting dinner in their own home. And he takes the bread, and he breaks it. So he picks up the bread, and and maybe at this moment they notice something different about his hands. There's holes there or he would have been hung on a tree. And maybe at this moment, they see as he breaks the bread and he blesses it, their minds rush back to when he broke bread and multiplied and fed 5,000 people. Or maybe at this moment, as he breaks the bread, they think back to the Lord's table when Jesus says that my body will be broken for you. And here in this place, As Jesus has unpacked his suffering to them, they see in the broken bread, the broken body of Jesus that died for their sins. And it says that Jesus reveals himself. He opens their mind to see that it is indeed him. And all the pieces fit together. This is Jesus. This is Christ. This is the one who was broken for us. And then he vanishes. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Revealed and takes off. It's like the, the best Irish goodbye you could find. Just reveals himself and then he's out before anybody can say goodbye. And I can't even imagine what's going through the disciples' heads at this point in time. But what we do know is something happens in that moment. Something very important happens in that moment. They have now a renewed zeal for the mission of the kingdom. Because the scriptures were unpacked and it says, did not our hearts burn within us as he unpacked the scriptures to us? 
You see, Jesus at the center of the scriptures should lead to passionate joy and missional zeal. And this is mind-blowing to me about this story. These disciples hear this. They have just two verses earlier said, hey, it's too far. Stay with us. You can't make it anywhere. And then it's nearing the end of the day. The day's you can't get anywhere, and they pack up within the same hour and make the seven-mile journey uphill back to Jerusalem. Like, that doesn't happen unless you've been incredibly convinced and inspired and fueled towards passionate missional zeal. Like, they're not going to do that. They could wait till tomorrow, but they don't. They go now, and they run towards Jerusalem. The experience of their hearts being opened, their eyes being opened to realize Jesus as they see the scriptures preached with Christ at the center leads to life-changing transformation. Jesus does not give them a moral lesson here. He doesn't tell them how to be a good Christian. No, he unpacks himself and it leads to transformation in their lives. And so they go and they, they tell all the other disciples the good news of Jesus and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And I, I think that there is something for us in this passage that's ridiculously important. I think we need to ask the question as we read this passage, does the way that we read the word of God lead to passionate joy and missional zeal? Or does it lead us to preach a gospel similar to the disciples on the road? One of sadness and disbelief. One of do better, be better, get better. Or does it preach the resurrected Christ that is hope to a dying world, that is light in the midst of darkness, that is the, the Bible's multivitamin, right? You take a multivitamin in the beginning of the day because you don't know which vitamins you're supposed to take. So Jesus applies the gospel to every situation of your life. That's how you get better is you believe the gospel. That's how you see passionate joy in your life. You believe the gospel. That's how you see missional zeal and a desire for the city to know Christ, is you believe the gospel and not a shortened gospel, the gospel that Jesus has come for you, for your sins, because you are not good enough. And Jesus didn't only come for you, he died for you because you deserved death, but he took it. And then he rises, defeating death, so that you and I might have resurrection hope in the midst of the worst times we can look forward to the future, knowing that he has died, he will raise for us. He, has, he will raise us up.
If the full gospel that is presented throughout all of Scripture leads to passionate joy and missional zeal, I just have a question. Where is this in our lives? You see, the answer here is not to try harder. It's to encounter Jesus. The disciples were not trying to be better missionaries or to be better Christians. In fact, they're walking away from Jesus, and Jesus encounters them, reveals himself to them. When we encounter Jesus and what he has done, and when we see the fullness of the gospel presented throughout the Bible, we can confidently say with the apostles in Acts chapter 4, amidst persecution and amidst suffering, we cannot stop because we can't help but share what Jesus has done. We cannot help but talk about what we have seen and heard. And this should absolutely be us when we've encountered Jesus. But so much of the church is not this. And I don't mean our church personally. I mean the church globally. And I think it's because we're reading the word wrong. When we read the word through the lens of Christ, it sets hearts on fire and changes the direction of our lives. Interpreting the scriptures in light of Christ leads to passionate joy. And we as a church have a responsibility to uplift and magnify Christ and Christ alone. And so this was an introductory sermon. Over the next 12 weeks, carrying us through Easter with a small break in the middle, we're going to be entering into a series called Christ Meets Me Everywhere. Augustine, who's a church father from uh, the 4th century, Famously writes as he's reading the Old Testament, I cannot help but recognize that Christ meets me everywhere. And in this series, we're going to be covering passages through the Old Testament and seeing how they point to Christ. I, I believe that it's not a message or of morals or principles that transforms the people's lives. Certain, like, don't get me wrong, God absolutely has a, has a moral vision for our lives. I'm not saying that he doesn't. I believe that God has a moral vision for the lives of the people that call him their savior. I don't disagree with that. But I think that if we preach a moral vision without uplifting and magnifying Christ, we will absolutely miss the passionate joy that comes from seeing Jesus at the center and the missional zeal that comes from him enlightening our hearts and setting us into, uh, calling us into ministry. The good life that Scripture promises only exists within the context of recognizing that it's found its fullness in Christ. So over the next 12 weeks, I want us to ask the question, How do the scriptures all point to Jesus? How does the Bible center on Christ? And as we do that, my prayer for this church is twofold. Number one, it's that we will experience a passionate joy and love for Jesus that we cannot wait to share with others. There are, I know you're a passionate people. I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook. I won't say what you're passionate about. I think we need that passion to be fueled in the right direction because if there's anything our world needs right now, it's Christians who are passionate about what Jesus has done for them. 
And so that's my, my first prayer is that we will have a fresh encounter with Jesus and we will experience passionate joy and love for Jesus Christ that we just cannot help but share. And my second prayer is this, that we will see people who have never encountered Jesus before encounter him through the word of God and the missional zeal of his people. I strongly believe, and I will, I will, I will preach this for the rest of my life, the word of God preached in the way that Jesus preaches it transforms lives. I absolutely believe that. The gospel transforms lives. Literally nothing else does that. And so here's my invitation to you, and then I'm in my seat. Would you be open to a fresh encounter with Jesus? Would you be open to him meeting you on the road? Maybe, maybe you're in this room and you're skeptical. That's okay. So were the disciples. And Jesus met them. Maybe you're disheartened, and that's okay. So were the disciples, and Jesus met them. And maybe you're doubting. You're ready to leave. In fact, you're, you're already on the road away from Jesus. You're headed in the opposite direction. That's okay. So were the disciples, and Jesus met them. So I want to ask you, would you be open to to prayerfully inviting people to this series, to be a part of this, to encounter Jesus on the road. I believe Jesus in his gospel confronts us wherever we are. There's not a place where he can't find us. And our city needs to encounter Jesus. Your family needs to encounter Jesus. Your friends need to encounter Jesus. Your coworkers need to encounter Jesus. The checker at Albertsons needs to encounter Jesus. And we have that with us. And so here's, here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this. Number one, maybe you're, you're like, yeah, I just, I'm not buying into this. Sit in this series for 12 weeks let us see Jesus together. And I'm going to be praying, and I hope that you would pray that the Lord would give you fresh eyes and missional zeal and passionate joy in who he is. And then I'm going to end it with this. I promise to preach the gospel every single week I'm up here because it's everywhere in Scripture. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't read the Bible and not find it because otherwise I just haven't understood that passage yet. And so my invitation is this. I promise to preach the gospel, but we need some people in these seats to hear it. Will you invite your friends to come hear the good news of Christ? And maybe, for some reason, they will not set foot in a church. Will you share the gospel with them? Will you share the good news of Jesus' resurrection so that they might have life and life abundantly? Over the next couple weeks, we're going to have some cards that will be available, little business card size. And we're just going to ask that people would hand those out. We believe, we believe 
that Jesus transforms lives. We believe he does that. If we don't, there's no sense in us being here. We're playing a dangerous game if we don't believe Jesus transforms lives. Would you be willing to step into this mission of seeing our city transformed for Christ with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, I'm just continually captivated by the fact that you, man, Lord, you pursue your people. And there will be those who reject you, but there will also be those who find life in your name. Help us to be so passionately consumed with the good news of Christ that we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Lord, we thank you that you meet us everywhere. Father, right now, before we go, I just want to lift up two prayer requests. One of them is for Rebecca Wood, who's in this room right now and is suffering with stage two melanoma cancer. She's going to have surgery on January 29th. Lord, I pray that that would be a success, that you would give the doctors your gift of healing. We thank you for the common grace that is doctors and medicine to help us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a healer. So we pray for healing. And lastly, Lord, I just pray for Robert, um, who currently is recovering from COVID. Um, Lord, we miss him here. We miss him in this building. We miss his joy, his contagious joy. Pray that you would heal him quickly and restore him to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.